Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at ConwayShield.com. Welcome to the Leadership Under Fire, Humanizing the Narrative podcast. The conversation you'll hear in this episode was recorded in April 2023 at our National Leadership and Performance Summit, which took place in Annapolis, Maryland. It features LUF founder Jason Bresler interviewing Ty Daniels, a seasoned U.S. submarine officer with extensive insight into leadership and ethical behavior. We hope you enjoy this conversation and others from the summit, which we plan to share on this podcast. So our first featured guest and performance leader today is Lieutenant Commander Ty Daniels, U.S. Navy Reserve. Ty graduated from the U.S. Naval Academy in 2012 with a Bachelor's of Science degree in Ocean Engineering. Afloat, Ty completed his division officer tour aboard the Los Angeles-class submarine USS Jefferson City as the assistant engineer, and then aboard the ballistic submarine USS Alabama Gold Crew as the engineer officer. During his sea tours, he completed one Western Pacific deployment and three strategic deterrent patrols. Ashore, Ty served as the character development officer at the U.S. Naval Academy, where he taught leadership and ethics, as well as supported submarine engagement initiatives. Ty left active duty with U.S. Navy in September of 2022 and currently works for Amazon Web Services. He continues to serve with U.S. Navy Reserves and is assigned to Submarine Group 8. Ty is a native of Montello, Wisconsin, and he resides here in Annapolis with his wife, two children, though he's, uh, he's packing up to leave Annapolis. He's moving to San Antonio, and he's got another one on the way. So ladies and gentlemen, Ty Daniels. Thank you very much. All right, so so Ty, pr- pretty interesting background. Uh, any other s- submariners in the room? All right, so you're the. Uh... All right, so whatever I say is uh, is going to be truth today. That's good. <laughs> good, good to know. But we've all watched Crimson Tide, so we. Uh... That's right, Roll Tide. All right, so here we go. So I'd like to begin our conversation today by asking you to humanize a sailor's environment on a submarine. Yeah, so um, submarining is, I think, one of the few professions out there that that still is kind of this uh, mystical uh, profession that a lot of people don't understand, right? You've seen Crimson Tide, Hunt for Red October, but doesn't really paint the full picture. Uh, maybe some folks, Das Boot is a little bit more uh, familiar for you. But, but the environment on board a submarine, which I think is actually very similar to an environment a lot of people in this room operate in, uh, those of you who are working in the fire service, it's a very brutal environment that doesn't, uh, you know, isn't a normal place a human being would find themselves. And so, you know, that environment on board a submarine presents a lot of challenges. And to kind of humanize what some of those things are, you know, there's the, there's the obvious ones that people think about, like no sunlight, right? Hey, how many windows do you have on the submarine? Uh, zero. We have one periscope and only a few people get the opportunity to look out that, right? So there's a lot of unique challenges that you find yourself on board a submarine. Sunlight being the one, so, you know, vitamin D, uh, the nice warm ray on your face, just non-existent. Uh, oxygen is another interesting one that we talk about. So you're all 
uh, breathing 20% oxygen in this room right now, which is, which is glorious, but sometimes on the submarine you can be down in that 17% range, uh, which is pounding headaches. You know, you do 20 push-ups and you can barely raise your arm. You're like, am I that out of shape or is it just the oxygen? It must be the oxygen. You know, some other unique challenges that we find ourselves on board is, you know, going back to that oxygen piece is just other atmosphere controls that you don't consider. How do you keep carbon dioxide levels down? How do you keep your carbon monoxide levels down? Uh, how do you maintain pressure on the ship such that, you know, you're not getting that pounding headache and your ears aren't constantly popping or whatever it may be? And some other things that you maybe don't think about, food is a very interesting one. So submarine goes out with a very specific number of days that we're prepared to stay uh, underway, underwater, and undetected. But because of the nature of what we do, right, we're supporting missions that are vital to national security. And if, you know, you're butting up on that X day limit and you haven't heard from anyone yet about where you're pulling into your next port, well, then you start having conversations about how are we going to limit the, num the amount of food that we have so we can stay out for who knows how long. And that's when you start talking about, you know, you're eating bologna for breakfast, you're eating bologna for lunch, and then you're getting bologna again for dinner uh, and trying to maintain everyone's spirit up like, hey, it's not that bad. We can fry it in the morning. We'll put it on some bread in the for lunch and, and we'll fry it again for dinner. So, you know, those are some of the unique aspects that we find ourselves on a submarine. You know, it's interesting when you think about it from just a very specific state of like, let's take a 350-foot cylindrical tube. Uh, yep, sounds great. We'll cut it in half, and the back half is all nuclear reactor and engineering propulsion spaces. So you can't live there or do anything really interesting in that area. So we'll give you 175 feet to live in. Um, and then we're going to seal it off. We're going to put 150U on it. And just to make it more interesting, we'll submerge it 100 feet underwater, and you'll stay out there for four months. So just from that very basic kind of thought process, that's what you're dealing with and some of the uniqueness that you have on a submarine. It's fair to say that every single one of those obstacles you mentioned, even in isolation, negatively impacts human performance? Yeah, I mean, it certainly, you know, it presents some challenges that, that you just don't think about in some other professions that you have. Like everyone gets the opportunity typically, right, to go home, to go see their loved ones, to, to separate yourself from that work that you're doing. And when you're with 150 of your closest friends uh, out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, you don't have that, that luxury. Your home, your, your safe space is a, you know, two foot by five and a half foot uh, rack that you sleep in. And that's your only kingdom on the submarine that you can you know, is, is sacred to you and only you. So it does present a lot of challenges from, from a human aspect, uh, specifically when you're asking uh, sailors to perform at such a high level uh, for such a prolonged period of time in an environment uh, that is unrelenting. I mean, there's no, there's no error for mistakes on board a submarine, uh, let alone when you're out doing these missions that we're doing. You know, you have to remain undetected. You have to remain, you know, ready to... to to fight any casualty that might come up at a moment's notice uh, on a very technically complex platform. So uh, it, it, pre it presents a lot of challenges that you have to work, work through, yeah. So I think there's a general consensus, I know there's a number of military veterans in the room right now, but there's a general consensus that in the, in the military that the nu nuclear power school for submarine officers, as well as enlisted, is one of the most technical and intellectually rigorous schools in DOD. Just out of curiosity, like how, how much of the curriculum is devoted to human behavior and performance, and have there been any programmatic efforts in the Navy to optimize human performance? Yeah. Um, so 
In terms of the training that you go through, uh, so you go through a year-long curriculum of nuclear power training. So, so as Jason mentioned, I went to the Naval Academy as an ocean and got a degree in ocean engineering. Uh, so prior to becoming a submariner, I didn't really know anything about nuclear power. You know, I knew some very basics. So the Navy's nuclear power training program gets you from knowing absolutely nothing. You know, you can be an English major and be a submariner. Uh, so at least I had the engineer background for a little bit of a heads up. But it's a year long of six months. First six months is all academic. Second six months is operational at a prototype reactor that the Navy has shoreside. And, and during the first six months, there's no discussion about human performance or the, these challenges that you're going to face when you find yourself on board a submarine as a, as a junior officer. They're really only focused on the engineering aspect and building that foundational engineering you know, level of knowledge. It's when you get to that second six months that you kind of get a piece of it, but even then, there's no human performance discussion. It's sort of a, uh, hey, welcome to rotating shift work, where you're going to work seven days, uh, 12 hour days, and then the next day you're going to go from days to swings, and then you're going to do that for seven days, and then you go from swings to mids. Hopefully, your body, you know, reacts all right, and you just kind of have to figure it out, right? So from that perspective, there's not a whole lot of, of preparation you get. Uh, and you kind of have to start digging this, they're uh, developing this mentality of, you know, I'm faced with a challenge and I'm just going to work through it and, and kind of rely on those around you. Um, and as I'm kind of saying that, I'm, I'm sort of realizing that maybe there is a purpose to that, right? Because in submarining, you really have to rely on everyone on board because you don't have the luxury to call the fire department, the police department, you know, the paramedics, the doctor, like those things don't exist. Like it's all in house, right? And so relying on each other is really what, what makes you successful. So as I'm saying this, I'm like, well, maybe there is a deeper meaning that I've just realized 10 years after I did that. Um, but then after that training, you do go to what's called submarine officer basic course. And that's where they start teaching you the basics of submarine firefighting and damage control for flooding casualties and things of that nature. But still, even at that point, it's not really prepping you for this prolonged period of time submerged. Uh, in a very, you know, demanding environment. You learn a lot of that on the job, unfortunately. But they do a pretty good job of pre-screening you before you even get into the submarine community. So I also think that's a perspective of if this guy, we don't think that this guy or girl has what it takes, then you don't even get, you know, a pass into the club per se. So it is interesting. Now, in terms of initiatives that the Navy has taken to kind of ensure this uh, human performance, continues to improve. There has been a lot that has happened uh, while I was in the Navy. And the biggest one was with a circadian rhythm perspective. So as you can imagine, your circadian rhythm doesn't exist on a submarine. And they used to do six-hour rotating watches. So on a submarine, to give some context, you stand six hours of watch. So that's driving the submarine, operating the reactor, you know, looking at the sonar screens, whatever it may be. Uh, and that's six hours of dedicated you know, work that you're performing. And then when you get when you get done with that, you have six hours to do your job. So in my case, as the engineer officer, it's reviewing administrative paperwork, it's training the crew, uh, working on my own qualifications, whatever that may be. And then you have six hours of, of sleep time, or, you know, hey, if you want to go work out, if you want to watch a movie, if you want to take a shower, if you want to eat, that's your six hours. So when you look at it, you're really getting like three hours of sleep every night. And oh, by the way, on a six-hour rotating schedule, the time you're awake changes every day because just of the natural pattern of the 24-hour day. And that was a struggle. So when I first came into the Navy, one of my first deployment, that was how we operated. And I'll tell you, like trying to 
keep it together and operate a, a billion dollar submarine on four hours of sleep, towards the end, you kind of start losing it a little bit. And, and you recognize that really quickly with people like, hey, why don't you go get some extra sleep? I'll take your watch or whatever that may be. So the Navy rotated that into eight hour schedules. So now you've got eight hours of watch with 16 hours off. The only challenge with that is like, consider standing uh, in a room, staring at a sonar screen, driving a submarine in a pretty demanding environment where you know counter detection is not an option and doing that for eight hours without eating, going to the bathroom, anything. I mean, you're focused for eight hours, like total you know, game time. Uh, but then you get the 16 hours off. So typically you're looking at seven hours of sleep, vice the three, um, which to me was a breath of fresh air. I was like, I mean, I could do this forever. This is great. Um, so that's the biggest change that we've made from a human performance perspective. So I think the Navy quickly realized, you know, pilots, I think there's a couple of pilots in the room or NFOs, you guys get eight hours of sleep every day. Uh, oh, by the way, your uniform's pajamas. Like, that's pretty great, you know? Um, so, so like, hey, if we're protecting the sleep of these pilots because their job is so important, which it absolutely is, right? You need to be focused if you're going out there and flying an F-18 off the, the deck of a carrier. But why aren't we operate, Why aren't we giving that same opportunity to submariners who are operating in, in just as the same demanding environment, right? If not more, you know, and they don't even have pajamas to sleep in. So, you know, I thought that was a very interesting change that they made that was pretty well received in the submarine community. Uh, and definitely helped us to kind of maintain that that human performance for a prolonged period of time. All right, so that's some, uh, some 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 great insight. So, given that you said there's you know a little tension given the human performance and human factors in in the schoolhouse environment, but not much. Largely, you know, have to learn as you go. What are some of the behavioral changes that you made to optimize your performance and the performance of your of your crews as you became increasingly experienced with each deployment? You know, part of it. A lot of questions you get is. You know, because one thing I didn't mention either is uh, on the submarine, communication with the outside world is also non-existent. So emails are a luxury, but they all get read before they come to you. So some don't even make it to your inbox. Phone calls are non-existent and the internet is like, doesn't, isn't a thing, right? So, you know, from the perspective of working long hours, being away from your family, you know, on my last or my second to last deployment, my youngest daughter was born. So I wasn't there for that. So you do face a lot of these, these challenges, not just from a stress from the job environment, but because of the fact that you're completely removing yourself, you know, from your family environment or any support system you have. So what I was, you know, what I ended up doing and what I think a lot of submariners do is they take all of those extra things that you think about of the challenge of the job and, you know, for better or for worse, we just, we kind of put it away somewhere and we leave it in that place and we don't kind of revisit it until we get off the ship. And some people are better at that than others, you know, but you also build this extraordinary camaraderie with the guys and the girls that you serve with because, you know, 150 days for seven months or 150 people for seven months in a steel tube. I mean, you, you have no one else to rely on. So building those communicate, those, those relationships really helps you kind of also, you know, taking some of that stuff and putting it away uh, so you can focus on a task at hand. Submarine community also does a great job of keeping you busy, so you have no downtime. I think if I had the opportunity or I had the time of like a couple hours on my hands every day, like I probably would have struggled a lot more, but you're so busy all the time, like you don't have the opportunity to think about all of that stuff that I've talked about. But one thing I would do is I always carved out like 15 minutes before every meal 
uh, I had solitaire downloaded on my phone and I would play solitaire for 15 minutes and everyone knew that was like my protected time. Like, don't come bother me. I don't want to hear it. Like, unless there's a fire or we're sinking, like talk to me later. So I would carve out like a little bit of time for me. Uh, and that, as crazy as it sounds, like 15 minutes of solitaire was was really all I needed. Uh, and then I'm like, all right, let's go. Let's get after it. So. Are there any changes that you made between your, your first deployment and your second deployment? Yeah, I definitely, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting. And the biggest changes that I made was leading up to deployment. Like deployment's kind of like game time for the submarine, right? And so the weeks leading up is like you're, you know, I, I think of it as like you're out on the basketball court, you're warming up, you're getting in the zone. And that was kind of the biggest change that I made was that preparation phase, getting ready for deployment where, you know, you took the extra time to spend with your family, sort of grounded yourself, took a look up at the sun, enjoyed it for the last minute, and you just got yourself in this like mental uh, mode for game time. Uh, and then you, you know, flipped the switch when it's time to get underway and you, and you kept it on until you got back. So that was kind of the biggest thing that I did as I would go along in these deployments is sort of put a lot more focus on that preparation phase prior to the deployment and kind of get that last, you know, breath of fresh air before you go and, and get after it. Would you say that the greatest leadership challenge exists in the form of the, the social isolation? And not just physical, but the, the lack of communication that guys have with their families? Yeah. I mean, it's a challenge. And the submarine force, you know, the silent service, like that is one thing where you look at today's military and the submarine community is still kind of similar to that World War II submarine community that you, that you maybe read about or hear about in the sense that you're out there alone operating independently of everyone else. And the, and the captains, the commanding officers of those submarines still have that freedom to make the decisions on how they employ the submarine without, you know, direct line of communication to those above them and their superiors. And so I do think that is, you know, one of the unique things about the submarine community is we still have that, you know, autonomy that I think has been lost a lot of other places because of, you know, technology in a sense. That's kind of one interesting aspect that I think we still hold on to. And then what are some of the other leadership challenges? Yeah, I mean, keeping people engaged is certainly a challenge. The biggest challenge, I think, for us is, is maintaining the crew at this high level of operational readiness while also balancing not burning them out. And it is a double-edged sword, right? Every sailor on, on board would love for Sunday morning to be, you know, hey, we just kind of go do your, your six hours or eight hours of watch, and then, you know, we're not going to do anything else the rest of the day. Like... Just relax. Uh, unfortunately, Sunday mornings, you're usually woken up by the general alarm because we do an all-hands fire drill. Uh, that takes about four hours. And so, you know, the crew in the, in the, in the minute, in the, in the time, they hate it. They're like, we just need some sleep, guys. Like, what are you doing to us? Um, and, and we do afford them that opportunity. But we also recognize that, like, if you don't keep that, that sword sharp uh, and it'll dull within a matter of days of, of taking off, like there are some serious consequences that come with that. So that's probably the biggest challenge is, is striking that balance between maintaining morale in an area that morale might be hard to find um, and also maintaining the crew ready uh, so we can execute whenever we need to. And then you mentioned you missed, you missed the birth of your first or second daughter. My second daughter. So that's, that's somewhat common, obviously, in the submarine community. Yeah, very common to miss, whether it's funerals, births, Weddings. Hopefully, you don't miss your own. That would be awkward. Um, but 
you know, when it comes to family events or things that are happening outside the, the, the skin of the ship, uh, you kind of realize that, that you're going to, you know, you're going to have to sacrifice that. So it, it is common. We try our best to see, you know, what we can do to accommodate people, specifically like births. I mean, that's something you see coming from a mile away most of the time. So you're able to try to, hey, let's get this guy off the ship at our next port call and he'll come join us later. But it also depends on where you fall within the submarine structure, if we can afford to get you off the ship or not. And unfortunately for me, I, I didn't meet the cut. So, but, you know, my wife's strong, strong Navy wife. She understood, obviously. But I'll probably hear about that for quite a while. So. But it's conceivable that a sailor on board would lose a parent or sibling while on float and wouldn't be able to get home. Yeah. Um, what, what I've seen happen and typically is, is we'll get, you know, the, the AMCROSS, the Red Cross message captain you know will bring them in and, and and break the news and depending on where we are and what we're doing it's like hey i i can't get you off the ship to get to the services because we're you know we're on this side of the globe and you need to get to the other side but we'll get you off as soon as we have the opportunity right you can be home with your family now there are other instances where it just doesn't work out and, and you have to kind of stay stay out there for the long run so yeah it's it's really dependent on what we've got going on and, and the situation we find ourselves in Okay. And along those lines, like my understanding too, is if you have a medical emergency while underway, so there's a number of folks in here that are EMS providers, ALS providers, critical care nurses. So kind of walk us through in an event where a, a sailor has, has severe appendicitis. What does that look like? Yeah. So appendicitis is a very popular one. On my first strategic deterrent patrol with Alabama, we actually had three cases of appendicitis. And my captain's like, what are we giving these people? Like, what is going on? Like, this is crazy. Um, and so usually what will happen, right, is, you know, we have a, we have a doc on board, Corman, and they'll go to him like, yo, doc, like, I, you got you to gotta give me something. Like, I got the stomach pain. He's like, okay, here's some Tylenol. Like, let me know how it feels in a day. <laughs> and then, you know, they come back like, yo, doc, like, something's going on. And he's like, okay, cool. Like, captain, like, I think we got an issue here. You know, I think it's appendicitis. We'll come up. We'll stick an antenna out the water. We'll communicate like, hey, we got this thing going on. And then at that point, we go as fast as we can, as long as we can, to the closest port. So uh, submarine community has some things uh, in place uh, from like a water, water space perspective, where if like we need to get from A to B, but there's some other submarines in our way, they just like, we already have it all planned out, that we got, it, we got a highway to drive, and we just go as fast as we can to, to get them off the ship. Um, there have been some instances, so the other crew had a heart attack that occurred. Uh, and in that case, you know, they surfaced the ship, they drove as fast as they could towards the closest point of land, and a helicopter came out, you know, and took the guy off the ship. Um, but yeah, appendicitis is a popular one. We've had um, sailor lose some fingers from like a hatch slamming down on his hand, um, things like that. Uh, we've had one guy had a really bad like abscess tooth, and the doc's like, oh, I can take care of that for you. He's like, absolutely not. It's like. <laughs> I'm good. Uh, I don't know what you're going to do, but we're just going to leave that thing right there until I get off the ship. So, yeah, it's it's um, haven't had any like major you know deaths, fortunately, um, but that has happened, right? And and we the the doc is is trained in life saving you know practices, and he can make you as comfortable as possible. But ultimately, like he is not a surgeon. That is not that's not what he's here for. So definitely a unique opportunity for us to try to get them the help that they need. But, you know, there may be some instances where you're in a certain place and it's like, hey, we can't, we can't turn around. We can't surface the ship right now. Uh, we got to just, you know, figure out how to make you as comfortable as possible. 
you said doc. Doc being corpsman, doc being independent duty corpsman, doc being yeah, physician. Doc is an independent duty corpsman, so it's a pretty uh, selective group to be able to go out and be a corpsman on a submarine because you're the only corpsman on that submarine. So, yeah, he's a, he's a corpsman. A lot of them have experience uh, working with the Marine Corps before they come over to the submarine community, but great, great guys that do a lot for us. Usually you don't like them a lot when they give you that first Tylenol and you're like, I'm going to need more than this. But he's like, let's try it. Uh, but no, great, great guys. All right. So I'd like to drill into leadership specifically as it relates to, to your submarine community. From your perspective, you know, now after 10 years on active duty and now serving as a reserve officer, what are the leadership traits and characteristics that an exemplary submarine commander and or division officer possess? So submarining and I've alluded to it already, it's truly a team effort to get the ship underway, to maintain it out to sea. And there are aspects of submarining that that the dependency on each other to do uh, the job and do it right with, with zero defects. Now, uh, I will not say that the submarine is a zero defect culture, but we certainly have areas where we need to be zero defect. And so as a result of that, I would say trust is the most important thing that you, that you will develop as a submarine officer uh, or a submariner in general. Developing trust with uh, everyone on the ship, not just those that directly work for you, because there are things that everyone does that, if not done correctly, results in some pretty significant issues. And, and the best example I have is, is rig for dive. So on a submarine, before you submerge the ship, which typically you bring the submarine in from a deployment and you rip it apart. I mean, we're talking holes in the side. We take the shaft out. Like we do some pretty extensive maintenance because it's 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 a really challenging environment to operate in. So a lot of maintenance goes into keeping these things out to out to sea. So you're you know you're taking valves out. You're doing all this crazy stuff, and then you're like, okay, time to go. Let's patch up the holes and let's get this thing out to sea. Then you drive it out on the surface, and then you get to your dive point, and and that's like the scariest time on a submarine is after a major maintenance period. And you're briefing the captain, and, and he comes into control, and it's very dark, and it's very formal. And you're like, you know, Captain, I intend to submerge a ship. He's like, very well, submerge a ship. Uh, and, the, you know, dive, submerge a ship, make your depth 200 feet. And the diving alarm goes off. It's like the ooga. You know, you get, I'm getting goosebumps just talking about it. It's kind of like going off. I would think it's very similar to going off a carrier, but maybe not as sexy. But uh, anyways, so you submerge a ship, and you're just waiting and the hull is cracking and the ship's going underwater and, and it, you know, it's very eerie. And the next thing you, you just wait. And, and the next order that comes out is, you know, all hands report conditions on the dive. And that's where everybody on the submarine. So I don't care if you need to be up in an hour and you haven't gotten any sleep. I don't care what you're doing. You stop everything and you start walking around the submarine. And you look for water coming in. Uh, and then it's this very eerie moment where you're waiting for the report. So there's two reports you can hear. One would be, uh, emergency report flooding, which is not what you want to hear. Uh, the other one would be emergency report controlled seawater leak, which is not flooding, right? So we have key words that we use on a submarine. So things you never say. You never say fire. So we would always like say fuego if we're talking like training, um, because fire will get everyone moving in one direction, and 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 that once you light that fuse, you can't put it out. Uh, flooding's another one. Like you never say flooding on a submarine unless it's actually happening. So we have controlled seawater leak. And you're like, well, what's the difference between flooding and controlled seawater leak? And the way they train you is if you're in fear for your life, it's a flooding event. If, if you're not scared, it's controlled seawater leak. So you dive the ship, and, and that's what you're listening for is controlled seawater leak. And like, hey, is water coming into the submarine? 
And so kind of back to this rig for dive, before we submerge a ship, we have to get the ship in a rig for dive condition. And there are probably over 500 valves on that ship that all need to be in a very specific position so that water doesn't come into the ship. And we split those duties uh, amongst our junior petty officers. So they, these junior petty officers, 20-year-old sailors are going around and they're responsible for making sure everything is in the right position. And then we have a second checker go through and just double check and verify that everything's in the right position. And when you dive the ship, you're going to have water coming in somewhere. But the first question is, is it coming from a rig for dive valve? And was the valve in the wrong position? And we've certainly had situations where the answer was yes. Like that valve was not in the right position. Next question, obviously, who was supposed to put it in the right position? And that trust that you need to have with everyone of like, hey, I might be in my rack, I might be sleeping when this guy's on watch, and I need to know that you know, he's doing the right thing, he's putting those valves in the right position, and oh, by the way, if a casualty happens, he's gonna go and respond, because I'm sleeping, right? And, and, and so there's a lot of mutual trust that has to happen, and you need to, you need to build that very quickly with everyone. That's like the most important piece on a submarine, and once, you, once you've lost that trust, which we've had that instance happen, there's really no place left for you there, and we find somewhere else for you to go in the Navy uh, because really no one will want to work with you. You won't want, you know, no one's going to give you any tasks anymore because we don't have the time to check everything everyone's doing, and we have to have that trust that everything they're doing is correct, and it's really the bedrock of everything we do in the submarine community. Great insight, and mutual trust is something I know, I know that we value extensively both within the Marine Corps and certainly the, uh, the fire service is something that LUF we uh, speak about commonly. So you mentioned trust. What other, any other attributes, characteristics in particular, like when you reflect back, like the leaders that you uh, thought were exemplary, did yeah. they, they uh, display? Well, you know, so I've kind of alluded to it. Submarine, submarining is not easy. It's, it's a very hard profession. And if it was easy, you know, everyone would probably be doing it, which is very similar to a lot of professions that, that everyone in here is a part of. And so when you have these these jobs that you're a part of that take so much and are so stressful and demand a very high level of, of operation for a long, prolonged period of time, you know, it's really easy to kind of find yourself, especially on a submarine, like falling into that rut. And so the best leaders that I've had within the submarine community and really what I've tried to foster on the teams that I've, I've been, you know, had the opportunity to lead is like, we're going to work hard, but we're going to, we're also going to keep things light. And we're going to enjoy what we're doing, right? So the leaders that I I always worked with that I really enjoyed had this positive attitude that was so infectious. The wheels could be coming off. Things could be, it could be the worst day we've ever had on the submarine. But my captain had this giant smile on his face. And you're like, is he okay? Like, should he be smiling? He's like, it's all right, you know? And his big thing was... We're going to fail and we're going to make mistakes. Uh, they can't be catastrophic, but certainly we can make mistakes. Um, and we're going to see those as opportunities to exceed. And that was, that was what he was all about. Everything for him was an opportunity. Uh, it wasn't a challenge. It wasn't a hurdle. It was an opportunity. And that mindset, like when you kind of start building that with your team of like, these are all just opportunities for us to succeed. It's like, hey, Captain, are we pulling into the Philippines next week? Like, oh, no, I got a message. We're actually going to stay out for another two weeks. But it's a great opportunity for us to get better. And you're like, yeah, this is a great opportunity, you know? And that sort of uh, mental thought process is so infectious with the crew. And, and that was really the part that, that I took with me is this positive, infectious attitude because you're always going to have those times when you want to be down in the dumps. But that kind of stuff can, can permeate like wildfire, right? And, and just be so uh, contrary to what you're trying to do in a, in a stressful environment. 
Um, so that's like the biggest thing I've taken taken with me, and the biggest leadership attribute is just this positive, infectious attitude that I think really goes a long way. Yeah, I'm looking around the room. I think that resonates with a lot of a, a lot of uh, folks for for similar reasons. Uh, there's there's a bit of a maybe stigma or stereotype that leaders in your community are inherently introverted. Is that true? And to like what extent? And then how do you how do you build a, a team that's going to compete in an environment as competitive as and unforgiving as yours if you're one of those folks who are kind of inherently intro, an introverted perfectionist? So I'm fairly fortunate. I'm, I'm definitely not an introvert. And my captain was always like, you know, Ty, I'm so thankful that I have you because I always know exactly what you're thinking and how you're feeling. And you don't even have to say anything. It's just like very, it's painted all over your face. But for, yeah, a, a number of submariners are, are introverted, right? And I think where the infectious attitude, that positive, you know, thought process that I'm talking about does definitely require you to be much more of an extrovert. And where the introverts on the submarine really shine is typically those people are, are like crazy smart. I always say like, I'm not the smartest guy in the room when it comes to submarining, but you know, my dad always said you can't coach hustle. So I always gave it everything I had and I tried really hard and I built really good relationships. And so where those introverted submariners maybe can't do that as well, those guys are the people where you're like, Hey, this thing's broken. And they're like, Oh yeah, we do this, this, and this to fix it. And in, Boom, now it's fixed. And you're like, all right, sweet, man. So what you identify on the submarine very quickly is like where people fall into that realm. Like, hey, these are my extroverts. These are the guys that I need to go, you know, sell what we're what we're trying to do here and get the crew's morale up and rally everyone against a common cause. And oh, here's my introvert who, yeah, he's not gonna be the the person I put on the one MC to rally the troops, but he's the guy that I'm gonna give this task because this thing's broken and we need it fixed. And he knows, you know, super smart. Um, and that's usually what you find is, is what are the strengths and weaknesses on the team? And then let's just, let's make the most out of those strengths and weaknesses, right? And so if you're able to come in as a submariner, uh, as a leader in the submarine community and quickly identify where your team fits into these different, you know, areas you need them to perform and get them in the right spot, then your team just like takes off, right? Um, so that's, that's typically what I've seen in terms of how we handle that more introverted individual. Does Big Navy uh, try to balance that? I don't know, to be honest. Um, you know, the one unique thing about about the Navy or the military in general is you don't pick your team, right? You don't have that luxury of of being like, oh, I want I want him. He's great. Or, Spec want, ops guys, yeah, pick, though. yeah, yeah, they, yeah. They get, to yeah. Pick, they get to pick their teams. So I guess they got that going for them. But you know, we don't have that luxury. Like you get whoever walks across the the brow of the ship. You're like, all right, this is my guy. You know, let's do this. And so from that perspective, it requires you to really dive into people's personality and know your team. And you don't get the opportunity to do it over a long period of time. You need to quickly dive into that, right? And then you need to understand like, hey, what are your strengths and weaknesses? Where can we put you that's going to be the best? Uh, let's work on those, those weaknesses and let's kind of uh, fine tune some of those strengths, right? And so that's another important aspect is really knowing your, knowing your team, knowing your sailors. Uh, setting them up for success and, and making sure that they're in a place where the whole team can be successful. You mentioned earlier the extent, extensive effort that you put into preparation, like pre-deployment. Is that like a big piece of, like there's a technical piece and then there's the non-technical piece? Yeah. So in terms of like deployment preparations, there's a lot that we do and from like, uh, hey, we know we're going to be operating in this area. So we're going to go into trainers and we're going to learn that area and we're going to learn the operations and, you know, we're going to get stressed. 
Um, from a non-technical perspective or a non-war fighting perspective, our preparations mostly rely on like, hey, how can we get got, how can we get everyone the, the maximum amount of time with their family before we leave, which is always a struggle. How can we make sure everyone's fully prepared with, you know, powers of attorneys, wills, whatever that may be, and making sure that from a personal perspective, you're leaving port with the least amount of concerns possible, which also requires you to know your people, right? You need to know that Sailor X, his wife is due in a couple months and he's not making the birth, right? So we need to keep an extra eye on him. You need to know that, hey, I know this guy, he's actually rotating off the ship, right? And But he's coming on deployment with us. So his family's moving across the country while we're gone. Like, let's make sure that he's ready to go there and, and they've got the tools they need to be successful. So there's a lot that goes into pre-deployment preparations, uh, which I'm sure any you know prior military service understands what that looks like, but super important in our community because you know once you once you cast off all lines and you're underway on nuclear power, uh, there's no turning back, and and there's really nothing we can do to get you back home to support your family for most cases. So making sure that that all your eyes are dotted and your T's are crossed is, is super important. Thank you. you. You mentioned earlier the importance that morale plays. You know, most of us in here, I, I think it's fair to say going to a working fire, fire emergency of consequences is pretty much always inherently good for morale. Given that you work in a community where if you guys are actually operating, probably not necessarily an ideal, you know, in terms of like your level of, uh, level of operational engagement. But, well, I guess more, probably more probably, like what's good for morale, what's inherently bad for morale, and then how do you as a leader measure, like what are the metrics you yeah. use to measure morale? Um, so port calls are always good for morale, uh, but those don't happen very often. <laughs> So I think on my seven-month deployment, we were operational 90% of the time. So we, we pulled in uh, four times over a seven-month period for a total of, like, I think it was maybe three weeks, right? So we were out, out for six months, in for a month, essentially, scattered over those seven months. So poor calls are good for morale, but they just never happen. So you definitely don't hang your hat on that. Um, I would say that very similar to what you're saying, like going to a, a working fire, going to a, a, you know, a complex, you know, casualty scenario is is good for morale from a firefighting perspective for that profession and it's somewhat similar in the submarine community like if we're out there and we're executing a mission vital to national security that is good for morale like to know that what you're doing is going directly to you know the joint chiefs of staff the president at some like you're literally collecting data and it's getting sent off the ship and it's going straight to the president right because it's that important I mean, that's good for morale. Like, hey, I'm out here and I just worked, you know, my butt off for the last year getting ready for this deployment. And now we're out here and we're doing it. Like, we're not just we're not just punching holes through the water, driving in a circle, waiting for the call. Like, we're out here actually executing and, and we're we're doing some really awesome things. That's good for morale. And to some extent, like I talked about the extensions, like, hey, I know you guys are out on that mission and you've been out there for months and you want to come pull into Japan, but we need you out there longer, right? And that's actually a pretty easy case to sell to the crew. Like, hey, guys, we're out here crushing it, and we need to keep staying out here and crushing it, right? We need to keep collecting this data because it's important. Uh, and, and that's a very easy pitch for everyone to, 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 to grasp to and rally around. Or, you know, you're expecting to get relieved by another submarine. So some, another submarine comes out so you can leave, and that submarine's broken. Cam gets on the on the announcing circuit. Hey guys, you know USS, I'm I'm always broken. Isn't coming out to to relieve us, right? So we're gonna stay out here longer. But you guys keep doing great things. And and again, that's an easy pitch. Where it's difficult is when you're out there and you don't really have a well defined mission. It's like, hey, you're gonna go do some exercises with the carrier strike group. Like, ugh, really? Like, 
The surface ship's just trying to run us over. We don't want anything to do with that, right? And, and those are the much more difficult times. The, the exercise is, hey, we're just cruising across the ocean, trying to get from point A to point B. Um, those are the periods of time where morale can start kind of dipping down. And we don't really have necessarily a metric to measure the morale on the ship. Like, it's just pretty, it's a pulse, and you can feel it. Like, you know, that guy that's normally always got a smile on his face and greets you in the morning when you're getting your coffee, and, and now, you know, he runs into you and doesn't say, like, anything and just keeps going. And you're like, all right, like, data point number one. Like, uh, two sailors are getting in an argument over something that, you know, two weeks ago wouldn't have been an issue. Like, you know hey, that's my seat. Like, well, I don't see your name on it. And, you know, and they get in a little scuffle. Like, all right, hey, cat. And then, and really it's up to the officers, the more junior officers and, and the chiefs and the senior enlisted for us to have our pulse on that, right? And as soon as you see any sign of that morale starting to kind of tank, you gotta, we gotta have a chat as leaders about like, hey, what are we gonna do here? And I mentioned like the Sunday morning fire drills. Maybe that's an instance where like, hey, Captain, I think it's a really good idea that, that we let the crew sleep in on Sunday. Well, yeah, but we, we need to make sure we're ready to fight that fire. Like, yep, yep, Captain, totally agree. And I think next Sunday would be a great opportunity for us to do that. But I think this Sunday we just, we just relax, like watch some movies maybe, ask the cooks if we can get the good food out, you know, that sort of thing. So, like I said, no, no specific metric, but as a leader, you're just always on, a, on the lookout for that, and you're, and you're nipping it in the bud as soon as you see it, and you're coming up with unique opportunities to raise that morale. Steel Beach Picnic is a good one, so when you surface the ship and you let everyone topside in the middle of the ocean, that gets morale through the roof. I would never was fortunate enough to do it, because it seemed like every time we surfaced, it was like 20-foot waves. I was like, Captain, we can't go topside? He's like, not if you want to come back on the submarine. So, You've never done Steel Beach? Never done Steel Beach. Never once. Every time we I've went, done Steel Beach. Oh, well, 24 lucky. hours on a submarine, I did a Steel Beach. This guy, 10 like, years in the Navy, yeah, has never done Steel 650 Beach. 650 days underway, <laughs> and I never did a Steel Beach. Yeah, Every time we'd surface, it was like, actually, you know what? This isn't true. So one time, it was my first uh, strategic storm patrol in Alabama. We surfaced. Weather was beautiful. Captain's like, all right, we're doing it. We're going topside. Yeah, man, like get the cigars out. This is going to be great. I was on watch, so I just watched them through the periscope <laughs> topside. Uh, and I remember like when it was all over, we bring everyone on board. We submerge a ship, and my, my peer counterpart comes up. He's like, oh, Ty, were you up here the whole time? Yeah, yeah, I was. He's like, oh, man, I should have come up and relieved you so you go topside. I'm like, thanks for telling me that now. So, yep, nope, never did a steel beach. Yeah, approacher mid-cruise. I think at the end of my youngster year, we uh, out of Port Canaveral. And I just assume that that's what you guys, that's how you guys live normally. But I yeah, guess they want a, you to think that because they want you to come to the submarine they, community. They, it's like, they literally like, had a barbecue grill. On, oh, yeah. And uh, there was, I remember there was a sailor on Shark Watch. Yep. He, he, had, a, he had a rifle, long rifle. And we were all just jumping off the side of things, swimming. Like I was like, man, being a, being a submarine uh, also oh, pretty yeah. cool. When we when we have midshipmen come out for <laughs> these tours, it's like, oh man, the submarine thing's not that bad. They're eating ice cream every night. There's popcorn. They watch movies with the captain, who seems like in a really great mood. Uh, and and oh, we're gonna surface the ship and we're gonna go swimming. Like, yes, yeah, sign me up. Like, and then you get there and you're like, you're like a new ensign on board. Excuse me. Um, what movie are we watching with the captain tonight? Like, you're not watching anything. Like, you're, you got work to do. Like, get to work. And they're like, oh, but where's the ice cream? Like, we don't have any ice cream. What? Like, well, when I was out as a midshipman, we were doing that. I was like, yeah, and welcome welcome to the club. <laughs> we now, got you. Yeah, we got you. Hook, line, and sinker. So, Oh, that's awesome. All right, so I'd like to finish our conversation today by exploring perhaps the most uh, critical element of leadership and performance, and that's the moral. 
the moral aspect. So ironically, uh, you and I know each other because we met um, during your time serving as the uh, d- the lead character development officer at the U.S. Naval Academy. And uh, I, I know for, firsthand, you know, through our relationship now over, over the course of the past several years that um, developing a moral compass in naval officers is a great passion of, of yours. So, you know, given some of the challenges you spoke about today, both from a human performance and leadership perspective, and the challenges and opportunities that you guys uh, encounter um, as a force, how does one go about adequately preparing junior leaders to navigate some some pretty burdensome moral dilemmas in a warfare community where there are literally strategic and nuclear weapons on each and every platform at sea? Yeah, and you know it's it's really interesting from my perspective, from kind of this moral and leadership development perspective of of young junior officers, is is I kind of recognized. You know, I spent four years at the Naval Academy where you're eat, breathing, sleeping leadership, right? Preparing you for that pinnacle to go out into the fleet and go lead sailors and Marines and do great things. You know, you commission uh, right, right down the road at the, at the Navy Marine Corps Memorial Stadium and you go hit the fleet and you never discuss morals and leadership again. It's like, hey, I really hope you paid attention those last four years because now you're going to go do your job. And we're really not going to give an opportunity to sit down and have these discussions, right? I, I just, I hope you're ready. And, and that was kind of the perspective I had, you know, going into my first tour of like, hey, th- to me, this is the most important part of my job is leading sailors and Marines. But I spend the least amount of time talking about it after I get out into the fleet. Um, and the Navy has, has kind of recognized that, and they've done a lot of great things to kind of infuse that leadership and that moral imperative discussion. And so within the commands that I've been a part of, you know, I recognize like, hey, how do you keep the, short, the, the sword sharp? Well, you do things habitually, and you talk about this stuff, and you, and you keep it in the forefront of your mind, right? And what's the best way to prepare for a moral dilemma? Uh, well, the best way to do it is to sit down and talk about you know, the situations that we might find ourselves in and to, you know, you know, here's an example. How are we going to tackle this, right? And so what we did on board the submarines I was is, is we took time, you know, hey, do we need to do engineering training five days out of the week? Well, I'll tell you the folks at Naval Reactors might say, might say yes, but we also thought, hey, it's a little bit more important for us to, to mix in some moral discussions and some leadership discussions here, right? And so I think moral compass and building that moral compass is a habitual act that you do every day, right? Uh, similar to any, any athlete who wants to get better at whatever it is that they're doing, you know, they don't just go maybe once a month and shoot free throws. Like they're doing that every day to get better and, and improve themselves. And from a moral perspective, I think it's the same, it's the same thing. The more you can surround yourself with people and have those discussions and, and have those, you know, exercises in, in that benign environment, uh, will prepare you for that time when you when you're faced with that moral dilemma, and, and I'll kind of take a little bit from what I've I've heard you say in your in your talks to the midshipmen is, is that moral dilemma is not going to come to you after a good night's rest, well prepared. It's not going to show up on your outlook calendar like, oh, okay, tomorrow at nine I'm going to have this moral dilemma. Let me start thinking about that. Um, you know, it's going to come when you're tired, when you least expect it, uh, when it's you got 500 other things that you're focused on, and. I think similar to kind of those more physical, courageous moments that you see people have, like everyone likes to think, well, when it comes, I'm going to just rise to the level of the occasion, 
which is false, right? You fall to your lowest level of training, and that's how you how you operate, right? And so kind of building this moral compass with junior sailors or even myself has been a journey of like maintain it in the forefront, keeping that sword sharp, having those discussions, uh, not kind of letting complacency sit in of like, oh, I've been, you know, when I went to my last submarine, I'd been in the Navy, I'd been in the submarine community for eight years, I'd done deployments, you know, I'd just gotten off my, my two-year tour at the Naval Academy where all I was doing was leadership and ethics. I could have very easily been like, hey, I'm ready to go, I have all the tools, let's just go do it. But instead, you know, me and another uh, counterpart on the submarine, like we started up these like weekly leadership discussions led by various senior entities on the ship. Uh, and we had these moral discussions. And a lot of the junior officers, you know, their feedback was like, hey, we, we recognize kind of the same thing I did of like, you know, these discussions stopped once you hit the fleet to some extent. And, and we're really thankful that we're kind of having those again um, because I think we're setting our, our junior sailors or you know junior members of our teams up for failure if we're not preparing them for these moments because ultimately like in the back of your head as a leader you have an expectation of how they're going to respond right hey i i this is what i think in this situation you should do right uh if someone is is you know gaffing off logs or lying about doing maintenance like there's a certain way we handle that right and and you can't just make the assumption that they know what that that looks like because you don't know what that pressure they're going to be under is. You don't know what the context of the situation is going to look like. So you need to have those discussions and make sure those expectations um, and and your team is conditioned to handle those when that moment comes up. Um, you know, my biggest thing on the submarine, I never had any moral or ethical issues when I was on Alabama, and I. I do think part of it was this preparation that we put in with the crew and, and the way that we maintain it on the forefront. But also, I think as a leader, you have to recognize that I would say 99.9% .9 of the individuals who work for you don't come to work in the morning being like, I'm going to mess some things up today. I'm going to lie, cheat, or steal, and I'm going to make your day like awful. No one is doing that, right? I, I genuinely believe everyone comes into work, they want to do the best thing that they can do, and they want to make the team better, right? But life happens and people get stressed. They get an order that they misunderstand is like, go, go get this done and do whatever you need to do. Like, oh, whatever I need to do? Yes, sir, I can go do that, right? Or I just wanna get home because I've been here for 16 hours and we're leaving in two weeks and I wanna go see my family. So I'm just gonna, yep, done, I'm out of here, right? And so what you need to recognize as a leader is, is when people make those mistakes, like my biggest thing was I, I treat honest mistakes honestly. Right. So if you make a mistake, one, I, I, I want to know about it so we can train the crew and we can get better. Um, but I'm not going to hang you out to dry on it either. Right. You're a human. You're going to make a mistake. Uh, and I think by by fostering that that environment, we, we never had that issue. People were making mistakes all the time and they were bringing them up to the point where they're like, uh, as the engineer, for short, they call me Eng. Like, hey, Eng, we messed this up again. I'm like, oh, God, like every, you know, but. But the other thing too is like when you get those reports, it's how you handle that as a leader as well. Because if you fly off the handles or you get frustrated or you get angry, uh, then you're gonna stop getting those reports really quickly. And so, you know, kind of back, bring it full circle. Like, hey, Eng, we, we messed this up. It's pretty bad. Uh, like for instance, we had to shut down the reactor at sea once because we messed some stuff up, which is not where you wanna be. Uh, and I'm like, all right, this is an opportunity for us to shut down at sea and, and, and get after it, you know, that's, that's great. And he's like, 
are you feeling all right? Like, this is not good. I'm like, nope, this is an opportunity to succeed. Like, I'm great. This is, this is totally fine. You know, and, and I, the feedback I got kind of as I was leaving my last tour was like, hey, Eng, like, we really appreciated how we could come to you with anything. And, and we always knew how you were going to react. Like, it was going to be a positive, like, learning experience, not this, like, scream fest that you sometimes see. And, and I certainly think that helped uh, and kind of allows people you know, when those moral, moral dilemmas come up, they also recognize that they're not alone on an island to make that decision. Like, they have a support group to help them, you know, work, work through it. Like, I don't expect some 23-year-old, you know, ensign who, who's been in the Navy for 20 minutes to be able to navigate those, those issues flawlessly. But I certainly would hope that if he runs into that, he or she runs into that, they won't hesitate to call me if I'm sleeping, if I'm doing anything. Uh, and, and, you know, we'll throw as much resources at making the right decision and, and doing the right thing as possible. So. Well, I appreciate all that. You shared a lot there. I, I think in particular, the, the fact that you, you, you kind of spoke to the fact that maybe there, there's kind of an organizational discrepancy or, de, or deficiency as it relates to leadership development, but that you guys recognize that uh, kind of at the uh, tactical level, right, organically, bottom up, you guys could, ad could address it. Like in a really meaningful way, I look around the room, like most folks in here right now are probably like mid-level, mid Right, tactical level leaders and, and, and managers, and we oftentimes kind of recognize that we, we wish the organizations we serve were, were perhaps a little bit more attentive to human performance or leadership development or character development, right? Developing the moral, the moral piece. And I think the fact that you guys uh, kind of exploited the opportunity that was like in a really proactive and meaningful fa fashion is, uh, you know, is encouraging to everyone in here. Yeah, and I think the Navy has come a, a long way since I first entered in terms of infusing this leadership discussion post-commissioning or, or post-introduction you know, uh, introduction into the military. Um, but I'm also a firm believer of like, hey, if you think there's a gap somewhere in your, in your organization, an area that we should be focusing on, you know, it's really easy for me as a junior sailor to be like, oh, well, clearly the captain doesn't care about this because he hasn't put a program in place. Well, then you learn like, well, no, maybe the captain hasn't thought about this because he's getting pulled in 500 different directions, right? And so feel free to stand up and say, hey, captain, I think we're missing this and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the leadership, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to own this process and I'm going to, you know, get something going. And, and I, I know from a leadership perspective, the best thing you want in, in a person is that, is that individual that you got to like pull back, right? Not the individual you got to kind of push along. And so... You know, recognizing a gap in your organization, whether it's in leadership or moral development or, you know, physical, whatever it may be, funding, that's a, that's a popular one. Like, we need more money, right? You know, feel free to, like, own that and, and, and be the champion of that cause instead of kind of idly waiting for someone to be like, hey, I recognize we're missing the leadership boat. Like, here, I, made, I did this for you. Like, go, go forth and do it. You know, so... I, I think there's been a lot of discussion within the Navy on that, and, and they've, like I said, leaps and bounds, and we, and we have some good things, you know, from a from much bigger Navy perspective in place. So. That's great. So, so I'd like to finish kind of connecting the human performance challenges, perhaps opportunities, but, but more accurately challenges, to the moral, the moral imperative uh, that, that is damage control. So virtually, or many of, of those in here in the room today are firefighters. You know, you know my, my sense is that fighting a fire in a submarine that's that's underway and forward deployed isn't merely a professional duty, but, but certainly nothing shy of a moral imperative in terms of what is likely the most unforgiving environment a leader and his team could operate in gear and on SCBA. Would you be willing to elaborate as to why putting the fire out is truly a moral imperative? 
and the, the mindset that is required, the imperative that, that is to, to instill that mindset, the appropriate mindset in your sailors. Yeah. Um, you know, every Marine is a rifleman, but every sailor on board a submarine is a, is a firefighter or a damage control specialist to some extent. Right. And surface ships have the luxury of, you know, for, for some of them where like they have their own kind of team of firefighters, right? Everyone else just gets out of the way and these guys, these, these sailors come in and they fight the fire. But submarines, that's not that way. Everyone on board uh, does this. And it kind of circles back to trust because on board the submarine, we have a matrix and Every single person has a role to play and a place to be when the uh, general alarm goes off, right? And the biggest thing that for us fighting a fire on a submarine is that thing needs to be out in like 30 seconds. And if it's not within, I think it's four minutes, that space is uninhabitable. You're not going in there uh, from the heat, from the smoke. And so for, for us, you know, I was fortunate enough to never have a large fire on a submarine, which is essentially, you know, days over at that point. But I certainly had my fair share of fires on a submarine. It is like nothing you've ever seen before. You know, we all know when the fire drill is happening. So people, I mean, they, people get after it, but it's it's a different thing when the fire when the general alarm goes off and you hear, you know, fire, fire, fire in the engine room, fire from you know engine room lower level, fire from the the main feed pump is just kind of the litany that we that we have. I mean, you see people jumping out of their racks in their underwear, like taking off, like grabbing fire extinguishers. It is, it is pandemonium, but it's, it's a bit of controlled chaos. And every fire that I've had on board the submarine has been out, you know, within 30 seconds. Uh, and it's that, that initial response. I think for us, we have a little bit of a luxury that everyone knows you're not, you like, your life is on the line when that fire happens. I mean, it's, it's like, you're, you're just not going to make it if it gets out of uh, hand. And so that's a pretty good motivation, uh, for everyone to, to have that moral response. But then that trust piece I talked about too, is everyone on board that submarine has a very specific role they play when, when these things happen. And you need to trust that the right person is at the right spot to do the right thing. Uh, and that also goes with like maintenance and care for the equipment, you know, making sure that after the drill, the SCBAs are recharged and everything's where it needs to be because we have a very well-defined script on how we tackle these items. Um, same with like from a flooding perspective, it, it's, it's all the same. Uh, and, and again, you know, we've also trained sailors that were very proactive uh, in terms of damage control. So when you see a deficiency or you smell something, an acrid odor. Again, we don't say fire on board the submarine because that triggers this response that I'm talking about. Um, but acrid odor is a common one that we'll call out. Like, hey, there's an acrid odor coming from this spot. And next thing you know, there's four, 40 people in this small space, like sniffing around, trying to find where this thing's coming from. Like, right there, turn that off immediately. And then everyone knows the power supply for that one thing, right? Because it's not a switch just located right on the thing. It's a breaker, you know, 50 feet away, uh, you know, secure power to the main feed pump. And a guy knows, hey, that's my job to go to this breaker and flip this breaker and flip the right one, not, you know, the wrong one. And then that's a whole nother issue. So for us, it's a lot of drilling. But again, I think we're fortunate in the fact that when you put someone on a submarine, you can very clearly show them that if you're not doing your job as a damage control specialist, if you're not tackling the issue, um, you know, we have examples in the submarine community, the USS Miami, Fortunately, she was in port when she had the major fire that completely gutted the entire forward compartment. Um, so 
you know, that's, that's kind of how we define that moral imperative uh, and how we work through that, uh, through training and, and just making sure people are ready. But there's a lot of self-motivation as, as well to, to take care of the problem as quickly as possible. But we've never had any issue with, you know, getting after it and taking care of the problem when it comes up. I think everyone is, is well-trained and, and really ready to, to take care of it. So thank you for that. Uh, ladies and gents, that, that concludes the questions that I had. So we really appreciate your willingness to come today and share your, your, your perspective. Uh, certainly uh, an, an interesting one as it relates to both leadership, performance, and, and, and certainly the moral, moral imperative. So uh, Ty, thank you. Awesome. Thank you. The Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit leadershipunderfire.com.